you know what we're going to do. If you've been here before, we're going to start with the young ones, the kids, <clears throat> the uh, uh, little ones. Okay, kids, if I could have your attention. I'm going to tell you what the passage is going to be about, and I'm going to tell you what the sermon's going to be about, okay? So uh, I want to tell you a couple stories. There was a, uh, there's an old Coke commercial. There's this old Coke commercial, if y'all like uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, there's this little kid, and he's got his Coke, and all of a sudden, these three bullies come up. It's like there are always three bullies, because there's one real bully, and then two guys who just aren't sure of themselves, and they've attached themselves to this bully. Okay, so um, there, three bullies come up, and they start picking on this kid. And, and they're like, you know, they're you know messing up his hair. They're like messing with his nose and his face. And they're like, <laughs> you know, they're bullies, bigger bullies. And uh, and they take his coke. And then all of a sudden, you see this shadow loom over the three bullies. And their eyes go up. And they hand the little boy his coke back. And they fix his hair. And they run. And the little boy turns around, and he sees his big brother standing there. Pretty cool, right? His big brother's got him. His big brother's got his back. Okay, that is a picture of Jesus, that he is with you, your big brother. He is there, and sometimes you can really turn and see, oh my goodness, Jesus is here with me. Like, you can know, you can feel his presence, you can know his love, you can know he's with you in, in like, hard times. Okay, here's another story. This is a true story. When I was in high school, like, I think I was, like, a sophomore. I was in high school, and, uh, and I, uh, I came out of school, uh, I went to this one school, I came out of school, and there were a whole bunch of bullies there. A whole bunch of bullies. And, and I'd heard that these bullies were not happy with me. And I didn't do anything, I, you know, I was a nice guy in high school. Uh, but I heard, like, there were like five bullies out there waiting for me. I'd heard this was going to happen, I was with one friend, we went outside, and we just kind of just went along our way, got into the car, and, and they didn't do anything. And, and I, I felt really good about myself. And I was talking to another friend later. I was like, those bullies, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't want a piece of this. They didn't, want, they didn't want to mess with me. And my friend says, no, they know your brother was right around the corner. And your brother had made his presence known. My brother is a little brother. He's my younger brother. But he was a big boy. And bullies did not mess with my brother. And so they didn't mess with me. And I think that's a picture, too, of Jesus is there, and you don't even know it. Like, you don't even know it, and he is. He's there watching over you. How about this one? Y'all remember Lion King? I think this is in, like, the—I the, know it's in the animated, the cartoon version, and then there's another version with the live animals, real animals in that movie. Uh, that they're, uh, live, I don't know if it's in that one, but, okay, you remember when Simba, little Simba, he goes to the elephant graveyard— and he is not supposed to be there. He is not supposed to be in the elephant graveyard. So he goes where he's not supposed to go. He's in the elephant graveyard. And then what happens? The, the hyenas come. They find little Simba. And what do they do? They go after Simba. And they go after Nala. And, and, and they are about to chomp down on little Simba. And what does Simba do? Y'all remember? He growls at them. He, he roars at them. He's got nothing. So he stands his ground and he goes... And what do the hyenas do? They laugh at him. And they're like, oh, that was so cute. Do it again, do it again, do it again. And he does it again, only what happens? It's Mufasa who roars. 
and they free the hyenas freak out and Mufasa is there the big 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 lion Simba's dad is there and he gets those hyenas and he saves them and that I think that is a picture too of even when you are where you are not supposed to be doing something bad misbehaving doing something wrong guess who's there still watching over you say it Jesus. Jesus. Now you can, you, like, we can really ask this question. Okay, is that, is that like really, 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 really true? Does Jesus really save us from like something that's going to hurt us? Like, do, yeah, th- yes, nailed it. Thank you. God, we're tracking. Good. And you know where you can really, really see that? Like it really, 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 really happened in history. Where did that really, 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 really happen? Yeah, yes. Right now, we're coming there. So why is that true, that it is true in your heart that Jesus is watching over you? Because what did Jesus do to live in your heart? He died on the cross. Nailed it. He went to the cross to beat all those things that want to hurt you and harm you. Like from your sin and evil and the devil. Like Jesus really, 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 really has given everything to take care of you and to save you. And you know if he did that, if he took on all that evil and suffering for you, he is not going to leave you ever. He is with you right now. And he will always be with you. And we're going to need to see it when he comes back for us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's where we're going in our scripture passage in Zechariah 1. Uh, This is our sermon series for the spring. A little context for everybody. Persia. The mighty empire of Persia has come along and they have freed the Israelites who had been taking, they had been taken into captivity by previous big bad boy Babylon uh, who took Israel into captivity for 70 years. Persia comes along, takes Babylon down, frees the Israelites. Anybody that wants to go back to Jerusalem, you guys are free to go. Go back, rebuild your city, rebuild your temple, do your thing. So you get a group that goes back. They happen to be the poorest of the poorest people who had nothing in uh, the Babylon, Persia empire to stay around for. So they go back and they start rebuilding the temple and they find opposition after opposition, disappointment after disappointment, trouble, suffering on every side. And so God sends his prophet Zechariah to them. This spring we're only dealing with the first half of Zechariah, as you may know, Uh, but it's this beautiful uh, structure and and formation of the book of Zechariah where the first half mirrors the the second half. We're looking at these seven night visions. And yes, we're still in vision one. (laughs) Uh, Because if we can get this vision, we're going to get the other six and the whole book of Zechariah. So uh, the text this morning, we are in Zechariah 1, 7 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? 
And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, we keep what we've said the past two Sundays is if we get verse 8, verse 8, we get the book of Zechariah. Because all of the major players, all of the major elements, they're here. Uh, and, and if we get it, we're going to get the, the, the good news and the beauty and the assurance that's in the book of Zechariah. Verse 8 I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep. And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. They're all there, all the major players, major elements. When we identified that red, the rider on the red horse two Sundays ago, that is the angel of the Lord. He is a manifestation of the Son of God. Right there, second person of the Trinity right there. And this rider on the red horse is standing in the middle of the deep ocean. We talked about that last time, and we identified the watery deep as a symbol for everything that threatens God's people. It's, it's a symbol of chaos, death, judgment, evil, even the devil himself. So the only thing left are the myrtle trees. What are the trees? What are trees doing in the middle of the ocean? <clears throat> okay, remember, we said that when the symbols in visions are not clear, someone in the vision is going to explain them. Someone like the angel or even God himself explains the symbolism, but they don't explain all the symbolism because some of the symbolism is clear. You just got to know, you just got to know what's come before. So very uh, 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 good friend, one of my old, uh, one of my Old Testament professors used to say this, when you see trees in the Bible, always think of the cross a really good rule of thumb but you gotta you gotta work that out like are, are the myrtle trees are the myrtle trees a symbol of the cross y'all we haven't gotten there yet like just wait uh to get there we got to look at uh some other trees i would love to look at every tree in the bible but then we'll be here forever and so we, we can't do that uh what if what if we just looked at what if we just looked at those trees in the Bible where you got trees and you've got the watery deep and you've got God too? Just like here. Trees, deep, God. All together. How about creation? How about the, those very first two verses in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the deep is there. God is there. Where are the trees? Well, you keep reading. It says, then God separates the waters and the dry land appears. And that third day of creation, it is all about... We read that and we're like, oh my goodness, this is so boring. Because it's all about trees. 
and the seed that they have and the trees according to their kind. And we're like, oh my God, whoa, trees, okay, we get it. Okay, and then really quickly, two trees get all the focus, get all the attention. And keep reading that story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which you find at the center of paradise, Eden. And God is there. So, right there at the beginning, you've got luxurious trees with a local manifestation of God who just overcame the watery deep. Those are all features of paradise. Okay, what about this? Think Moses. Uh, the exodus and the parting of the sea. Israel comes to the Red Sea. Deep waters are there. God parts the waters. Israel goes through. Egypt's army is now bearing down and, and their army of chariot horses follows through. And what does God do? He brings down the waters on top of them, burying them, it says in Exodus 15, in the watery deep. So the deep is there. God is there. Wait, where are the trees? Right after that, it says on the other side that God brings Israel to the Elim Oasis. This little paradise in the middle of the desert with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And we could go into the number 70 and know how all that's a big deal. But there, bam, trees, you got tons of trees. God is there, the deep is there, the trees are there. Again, all features of paradise. Now think Israel coming to the borders of the promised land. This is, our la this is our last one right here. Think Israel coming to the borders of the promised land. So they've been traveling through the wilderness. They get to the promised land, and you've got the mighty, deep Jordan River there. Blocking their way. None shall pass. But God is there again. And this time in the form of the angel of the Lord, standing by the deep, he parts the waters. God overcomes the deep again for his people. And on the other side of that river is paradise, the promised land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. So you've got God, you've got the deep. Wait, where are the trees? Well, you read about this, what's happening here in Deuteronomy, and it says that God brings Moses. He, he, God says to Moses, go up this mountain. Moses goes up a mountain so God can give him this panoramic view of paradise. And it says that Moses sees the city of Jericho, the city of palm trees. The trees are there, God overcoming the deep of River Jordan, Israel passing through. Uh, this is a passage from wilderness to paradise. In Zechariah 1.8, the deep is there, God is there as the rider on the red horse, and you've got these myrtle trees what are the trees? It's a good question. It is an even better question when you realize that these trees are there. They are there only because the rider on the red horse has come. As in God showing up as this angelic man mounted on a horse with his armies standing over the deep as Lord, as sovereign Lord, and standing in the midst of myrtle trees over the deep, it is a promise. It is a promise to Zechariah to give to the people that he will overcome the deep and provide his people a paradise land. The myrtle trees are perfect for this vision too. If you like trees, 
uh, myrtle trees, are, they're so perfect for this because they've got these delicate, colorful, star-like flowers. They're fragrant, bright, bright green leaves. They're a picture of uh, idyllic beauty, paradise. So, are, are we saying, okay, wait, so the trees represent paradise. Yes. And, follow me here, and they represent you. They represent us. Because this vision, this powerful image, is a promise of paradise. It is a symbol of paradise land brought from the deep as the dwelling place for God's people. The trees symbolize your paradise dwelling place. So yeah, you're included in it. And the best part, the best part, this is so much more awesome, infinitely more so than just, this is just some paradise. This is paradise where God dwells with his people. God is there too. And when Zechariah sees this vision, he's in Jerusalem with the Jews who have returned from captivity in Babylon. They were freed. They were freed by Persia. Yes, they're back in Jerusalem trying to rebuild the, Jeru- trying to rebuild the temple and they're mocked and they're threatened and they're attacked and they are saying this is too much and they start to say things like do we go back into exile would that be better why is this so difficult why is it so hard to rebuild your temple god God, I thought the battles were over and I thought we were getting to go home. Are you still angry with us? Have you left us? Where are you? And Zechariah is supposed to take them the good news of this vision and the big question is, is it enough? Is this vision enough to get them through it? I just finished uh, reading Shakespeare's Macbeth with the Cliffs Notes, <laughs> with much ridicule from some of my friends. Uh, so good, though. Okay, towards the end, just towards the end of Act Five, Macbeth finds that his wife has suddenly died. Okay, and, and Macbeth is a very, very bad guy uh, who has uh, killed his king. He has uh, killed friends, his best friend. Uh, women, children, he's awful. Uh, and one shake, so he's here he is at the end, he's just lost his wife. And one Shakespeare commentator says this he says, Given the great love between them, his response is oddly muted, but it segues quickly into a speech of such pessimism and despair, one of the most famous speeches in all of Shakespeare, that the audience realizes how completely his wife's passing and the ruin of his power have undone Macbeth. And his speech insists that there is no meaning, there is no purpose in this life. Macbeth says this, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And the commentator thinks that this is not just Macbeth talking. He thinks this is Shakespeare talking. He thinks this is Shakespeare, his commentary on life. 
He says Macbeth's statement that a, a life's but a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, that you can read that as this really, like as you're watching it being played out on the stage, it's really kind of this deflating reminder of the illusory nature, illusory nature of the theater. He says, after all, Macbeth is only a player himself strutting on an Elizabethan stage. In any play, there is a conspiracy of sorts between the audience and the actors as both pretend to accept the play's reality. Macbeth's comment calls attention to this conspiracy like in the moment and partially explodes it. His nihilism embraces not only his own life, but the entire play. It is like this meta-commentary. Like a joke by Shakespeare on everybody. He says, if we take his words to heart, the play too is an event full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And, and we can go to these dark places where we wonder, we doubt, like, did we get this right? Is Jesus really, like, is it true? And whether we say it out loud, or there's something in our hearts, subconscious, you know, just to say, to think, if only for a fleeting moment, that it's just, it's, it's meaningless. It's just easier. It's just easier to get, to, it's just easier that way. To get through the day, to get through this life. But the assurance of this vision is not, it is not just a future promise of heavenly glory where we dwell with God. It is that and it's more. It's more than just a future assurance. Again, just for a moment, think of those, here's the awesomeness of God's word. Get ready. Think of those three vivid scenes again. Think of creation, the exodus, and the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. Okay, at creation... The chaotic, watery deep is there, but God is there and overcomes the deep to provide Eden paradise for his people. Okay, he overcomes the deep and he gives them Eden. But that paradise with God, it's lost in the fall. Okay, but then you fast forward. You fast forward. Okay, so we got creation. Now go, go to the end, go to the uh, Jordan crossing. God overcame the watery deep of the river Jordan to bring his people to that promised paradise land and he dwelt with them there in the temple well that paradise was lost too in the fall of Israel okay but both Eden and that promised land of Canaan they are promises they are foreshadows of God dwelling with his people in heavenly paradise now come back to that middle scene come back to Exodus you come back to this middle scene, the Exodus coming after creation uh, and after the fall and on the way to the promised land, the Exodus, God parting the watery deep, parting the Red Sea uh, and bringing his people to the paradise oasis of Elim in the midst of the wilderness. That, that is a promise that God is still with his people right then in the middle of the wilderness, on the way to paradise. It's a promise to them that he is there with them then and now. And that is a foreshadowing. That right there, that Exodus community, 
in the wilderness, experiencing that paradise of Elim in the midst of their wilderness, that is a foreshadowing of who we are right now. That is a picture of the church. And it is a, it is a promise and it is foreshadowing that even now, God is in our midst. You think, you think they, they came through uh, the, those waters, the parting of the Red Sea. And they're on their way to the promised land. Jesus has come and we're on our way to the promised land and the promise is that God is with us right now. It's this thing of the red rider standing, go back to Zechariah, the red rider standing in the midst of those myrtles in the deep. It's a promise that right now we can enjoy God's presence in the middle of the deep before we arrive at the promised land. It is a present assurance. So do you all remember when COVID was over? You know now the anxiety of COVID conversations? Trying to keep up with the news, trying to keep up with protocols, whatever it is today and tomorrow. And then, and then you remember you all got work and school. And you got, you got those kids who got sports and homework and their own lives that they need you to be a part of. And some of it is like, it's good. Some of that stuff is good, but it, all of it is busy and stressful. And for some, it, what it is right now is disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. We've got friendships that are struggling. We've got marriages that are struggling. We have family. We have friends. We have loved ones who are sick, who are getting sick. We have lost family as recently as today. And some of you are still mourning friends that you lost a few years ago. Some of you are still mourning family that you've lost a few years ago because that pain does not just go away. One of you asked me uh, recently uh, in the midst of you know, pain and, and disappointment, what does it mean to have the joy of the Lord? And it is such a good question. And, and it is a question that whether we, we know we're consciously asking it of ourselves or, or people that we know and love and trust or, or we're not, it's in each and every one of us. What does it mean to have the joy of the Lord? And I'm only going to scratch the surface of, of starting to answer that question uh, but it is a, such an excellent question because life is hard and then you... Uh, and life is also amazing. Like life is also amazing and it's beautiful. The weather today, y'all, it is beautiful. And I hope you get to go and be outside some and, and let your skin soak up some of that awesome sun. Enjoy some good food. Enjoy some good drink. Uh, and life is hard. And to quote one of my friends, sometimes there's not enough ranch water to make it better. <laughs> and the opposite of joy, the opposite of joy is not sadness. It's not. Our Lord, who is with us in the midst of the deep, assumes that we're going to be sad in this life. You are never commanded in the Bible, do not be sad. Cheer up. 
Christian is not always going to be happy. And if that was the case, then Jesus was a miserable Christian because he's called a man of sorrows. Worldly joy, it has to avoid suffering at all costs. It has to. Because worldly joy says, I cannot admit how bad I'm hurting. I cannot admit how bad the world is. Because then I would be really bad at this life thing. But we here, we should not, we should not deny our pain. We should not deny that the world is painful. And we don't, we should not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of getting involved with people who are suffering and hurting and suffering with them. We don't have to be afraid of letting people into our suffering. Because what is so hard to remember, what is so hard to remember is that joy coexists with sadness. Joy coexists with suffering. It's hard to remember that. And it's hard to, and this is even harder to remember, is that our suffering has something, has something to do with enhancing our joy. Which sounds so bad, but it's true. It has something to do with enhancing our joy because our suffering shows us, it points us, it takes us to where true joy can be found. And the only place, the only person it can be found. C.S. Lewis has uh, an autobiography. Uh, it's called Surprised by Joy. When you write an autobiography, you need to have some kind of creative structure to it to make it, you know, you can't just go from beginning to end. You've got to have something that you're worth telling uh, about your life. So uh, the way Lewis tells the story of his life is all about this one elusive experience that, that came to be this defining moment that shaped all of his life. So before, before he was a Christian, he kept having these these what he described these transcendent experiences where he felt like he was encountering something divine. And he didn't know what, he didn't know what it was. He just, it was awesome. So once he's, he's reading Longfellow, he's reading Longfellow, uh, and suddenly there comes this m- movement, he says, where I idly turned the pages of the book and read, here's what he read, I heard a voice that called Balder the Beautiful is dead, is dead. And Lewis says, and I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was lifted up into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described except that it is, it's cold, it's spacious, it's severe, it's pale, and then remote. And then as always has happened before, I found myself at the very same moment already falling out, already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. So we got hooked. He, he has this, he's such a nerd, he's, he's, he gets hooked on that feeling of joy in uh, reading Longfellow. Uh, and now whenever he found something that gave him joy, he binged on it. So he was reading Icelandic saga, so he goes, he goes and binges on Icelandic saga. Uh, and he goes and he, and he reads all that he can read, and then that's not enough, so he goes and he learns Old Norse so he can read the Icelandic sagas in their original language. And that's not enough. So then he gets a friend. This is good. That's good for Lewis to get it. And he gets a friend, and he binges on the friend. As in, like, every night, let's, let's just get together and we'll talk. Every night, let's just get in and we'll hang out. And, and for a while, that works until the friend says, okay, maybe not tonight. Okay, maybe, maybe next week. Uh, and then at one point he starts to realize, so he's binging on all this stuff, and one, he starts to realize that there is a God behind the joy. And he says, the books, 
The music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, you know, and he lists all you, they're good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. On the last page of his biography, he has become a Christian, and he ends with this illustration. He says, when we're lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a big deal. He who first sees it cries, look, the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we don't stop and stare. They'll encourage us. We're grateful they're there, but we won't stop and stare even though they're pillars of silver and their lettering is of gold because we'd rather be at Jerusalem. If you're really lost and you find a signpost, really, that's great. It's exciting. When you know you're on your way, you stop looking at the signposts. Lewis realized that food, drink, friends, success, popularity, acclaim, money, all those things that we think if we have that, that it's going to give me that joy. He says those things are signposts. And some of them are great. And so enjoying them for what they are is great. Christians should be the very best at enjoying this stuff because we don't mistake the signpost for what they're signing. And this is what he says. He says, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all those experiences were saying to me, it is not I. I am only a reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? He says, your experiences of joy... And I would add, even your suffering are pointing you to something else. And it is the joy of the Lord. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. It says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross to bring you out of death into life, to be with him because you are his joy. That makes him our joy. Jesus is your joy. And when it, in another part of the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, 24, it calls the cross a tree. It's trying to bring this all together. It, it, it says this, it says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed God is there in that verse the deep of sin and judgment it's there and the tree of the cross is there like all the elements of paradise because the tree of the cross is where God brings from the deep of our sin and from the deep of judgment from that deep through the tree of the cross, God opens the way to heavenly paradise where God dwells with his people. The tree of the cross, it is a cursed tree for Jesus. And because it was that for Jesus, for us, the tree of the cross becomes the tree of life. 
And that is not just future assurance. It is future assurance, but not just. It is a present reality that we are saved right now, that we have new life right now, that no matter what, no matter what is happening to you right now, the grave, it cannot touch you. This is present assurance that we are not alone. Jesus is risen. And I love what Alistair Begg has said about this. Jesus is risen. So he is not 2,000 years away. He is here right now. He is really, really here. And he brings paradise with him. Look to him and know your joy. Let's pray. So what I would like you to do here at the end is, uh, is take a moment to think of all those needs, all your prayer requests. Just take like a few seconds to think about all those really, really quick. Uh, think about those needs and your prayer requests. And then I would like you to join me in praying uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, and know that as you're hearing the person next to you across from you, that, that you're not alone in this. We have Jesus and we have each other. Please take a moment to consider your prayers and then take up that prayer with me. And God's people prayed, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.